0: Hello everybody, I'm John Marzalek, a host for the podcast, Queer Voices of the South, a LGBTQ plus studies channel podcast of the New Books Network. Today I'll be talking to Elizabeth McCain about her new book, A Lesbian Bell Tells, Outrageous Southern Stories of Family, Loss and Love. Settle back for a wild ride through a Southern lesbian's life of soul searching, rule breaking and truth telling. This bell's kind of coming out was not what her traditional Mississippi family expected. How does she recover from family estrangement in the midst of her career as a psychotherapist? How does she find lasting love and a family of choice? From her last boyfriend suggesting she become a lesbian to coming out to the church ladies at her mama's funeral. These true stories will touch your heart, give you hope and make you laugh out loud. Based on Elizabeth McCain's award-winning one woman play, Lesbian Bell Tells This memoir provides story medicine for your soul. It is filled with Southern charm and drama, as well as triumph over tragedy, as only a lesbian Bell can tell. Elizabeth McCain, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you, John. It's good to be here.
0: I'm so excited to have you here. Um, as you know, of course, you and I met for another. Call like this for the Mississippi Book Festival. And so I'm glad we met each other there so we could um, do this and have um, more talks in the future.
1: Yeah, so am I, John. Thanks. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So if you could begin by telling us a little bit more about yourself.
1: Sure. Well, I live in the Washington, D.C. area in Tacoma Park, Maryland, with my wife, Marie, and our two spoiled dogs who are (laughs) behaving very well right now. They're not barking. Um, And for Many years, I've been a spiritual counselor, uh, an interfaith minister. I added professional storyteller about mm. 10 years ago and solo performer because um, I have a little background in community theater.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, so I combine all of that because it's all about the power of story.
0: And I have to tell you that I'm just a little bit disappointed today because I thought when I, we would be talking that you'd be wearing your purple boa. And I, oh, wait
1: a minute. A purple you know what? Boa. There Ta-da. you go.
0: Okay. That's, I love it. Okay. So for the, for the listeners, when you see Elizabeth in, in a in a video talk or um, in one of her performances, you'll see the beautiful purple boa. Um, yes. It's also a collection. in the book itself. So we'll have to let the listeners <laughs> read the book to find <laughs> out. So, um, well, tell us what tell us what led you to write this book.
1: Well, I've been thinking about writing a book for a while, but I really consider myself more of a spoken word artist. I'm an extrovert. Um, mm-hmm. However, I had written a one woman show about eight years ago and had been performing it, you know, pre pandemic um in the DC area and a little bit in the South, mostly in fringe theater festivals. And it took off. It started winning best solo show and, mm-hmm. it it was thrilling. And I was just doing it, you know, part-time on the side and I had thought about turning it into a book. It's when people started to come up to me and say, have you thought about writing a book? These stories need to go out into the world that I got Mm -hmm. serious about it. And I wanted to reflect on my life. I was then in my early to mid Mm fifties and had experienced, you know, a lot of hard stuff, like most people, lots of loss and transition and kind of a bumpy coming out later in life kind of experience. And so I just wanted to reflect on that and sort of reframe the difficult stories and really inspire people, especially LGBTQ folks, Mm -hmm. um, to appreciate Mm -hmm. all of their stories, the the fun ones and the difficult ones, because they all have wisdom. in them. Yeah.
0: And that, that kind of leads me to asking you about how you became fascinated with stories, just the power of stories in the first place. Yeah, well, I think
1: it all goes back to childhood, as everything yeah. usually does. Yes, I grew right. up right. Right? Yeah. Uh, I grew up, you know that, as a therapist, too. You um, share that in
0: common, too. That's right.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, so I grew up in northeast Mississippi in a tiny town called Okalona near Tupelo, and there was not a whole lot to do, but everybody gathered and told stories all the time. You know, my dad every day had these long lunches at Mildred's cafe and he'd get all the town gossip. He was quite an extrovert. He was a banker and a farmer. And then my mother and her two sisters bought a summer house up in the mountains of Tennessee near Sewanee in a town mm-hmm. called Mont Eagle. And uh, it was this big old Victorian house and they named it Southern Comfort. And they would have these wild porch parties and they'd all sit on the porch. You know, My aunt Libba, she'd have, Scotch in one hand and a cigarette in the other. She said, darling girl, come sit beside man. I'll tell you stories, stories your mama does not even know. <laughs> I love that. So I just loved hanging out and hearing all these stories about my parents' childhood and their experiences when they were younger. And it was just a great way to connect and have a good time.
0: Yeah. So the stories have been with you a long time. And and um and now you're taking them to tell people about your own experiences, but it seems like you're also trying to um, help the reader learn from the stories also.
1: Absolutely. I, th- I think storytelling, especially, I mean, whether we write them or whether we tell them, when we share them in community, there is this mm-hmm. magic that happens, um, especially with our difficult stories, because we know that that we have gotten through them for once, for one thing, and we can feel a sense of empowerment and come to appreciate what I call the silver lining of difficult like there are all these silver linings, I think, of this pandemic. You know, mm-hmm. for many of us, we've reconnected with a lot of people. We've been able to slow down some of us um, if we're privileged enough to do that. Um, and so I think storytelling is is a, you know, it's a kind of psychotherapy and counseling and healing, mm-hmm. really. I mean, that's what happens in a, in a counseling room is, is a person, the client tells their story, right? And, and right. learns to, you know, over time, yeah, over time, reframe those difficult stories to like, okay, here's what I've learned and here's how I want to live my life differently and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, and you say there's a part in your book where you talk about just how stories are so important and the therapeutic value. And I think that one of the examples you give is, is, um, people in our community telling their coming out stories that that seems like such a common thing that people do with each other.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's been in my life in the lesbian community. It's been like a rite of passage. I mean, even Mm -hmm. to this day, I came out in the 90s in my early 30s here in Washington, D.C., and I was fortunate enough to attend a coming out support group. And we would sit around Mm -hmm. and, you know, share our stories about how we were coming out to our family and friends and And still still today, that's an important part of like a new friendship with with a person um, and certainly in promoting my book (laughs) with the title like A Lesbian Bell Tells, I get to come out over and over and over again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. You know, I've noticed um, in the gay community, in the queer community, all of us together, I've noticed at parties or just when I meet people, we seem to talk about things like, of course, where do you work? Um, how did you meet your partner or your spouse, you know, eventually get to the coming out story. And it's just, it's just fascinating. And then stories about how did your family react to you coming out, which is a major theme in your book.
1: Yes, it is. And I think, especially for those of us who are Southern, that can be a difficult thing because many of us came from very traditional, maybe religious families. Certainly I did. With yeah. um, mm-hmm. parents who grew up Southern Baptist and then became Episcopalian, um, yeah, it was a a rough journey, and it was a surprise when I came out to my family. You know, I I kind of laugh now. I mean, it was it was painful back then, of course, but I sometimes have said, "Gosh, if I had just looked really Butch, maybe it wouldn't have been so <laughs> hard for them." <laughs> uh,
0: I'm a lipstick
1: yeah. lesbian, you know. I'm still a femme. <laughs> so it just never made sense to any of my family members.
0: <laughs> you know, it, just like you did now, um, you have this way in the book uh, of doing something that you call um, in the book Gothic comedy, that you you talk about things that were really painful to you. And, you know, and then the reader feels that pain, especially if they've experienced something similarly. But then you were able to turn it into this comic situation. So I don't, could you tell just tell us about that and the, the power of, I guess, Gothic comedy?
1: Yeah, well, I grew up loving Southern literature. And I had this great teacher, Mrs. Susan Kaur, at this Episcopal boarding school who taught Mm. Southern literature. And I remember we read a lot of Flannery O'Connor and (laughs) um, Dora Welty short stories, and of course Faulkner. And she introduced us to this Southern genre in literature known as Southern Gothic. And what I remember about that is that the themes in in Southern Gothic, of course, this would be fiction. The themes had to do with um, oppression and alienation, dark humor, and then there was always some element of redemption. So I think that my stories have all of those elements. It's not fiction, of course. These are my true stories, and certainly I have written about the painful parts. And I think I have been a. I have the gift somehow of. I'm not stand up comic or anything, but I do have this gift of humor to bring in some levity to the really hard parts of my life. And I hope to inspire people because I think that humor can get us through a lot of grief. I think that I think that grief and joy are sort of in, interconnected and two mm. sides of the same coin so that the yeah. the larger my heart is to grieve, then the larger its capacity is to hold joy and laughter and play.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. I guess the whole idea that we grow from the challenges we have in our life.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that really comes through is um. And you and I've talked about this in our in another conversation, but the paradoxes of Mississippi, um, the love and the hate for small towns. There's yeah. so many places. I just wondered if you could talk about that, too.
1: Yes, I, I grew up with um, that sort of love hate relationship. I remember as a teenager being very bored in my little town, although I mean, I had friends and I loved my family and all of that. Um, but I remember thinking of cities as these really exciting places that would offer theater and museums and, and just a richer kind of life. And so, you know, I, my parents were, um, uh, gave us the gift of offering us to, to leave for, to go to college. And I remember my dad said, well, I'll, I'll let you go anywhere. I'll pay for anywhere you go to college as long as you don't go north of Virginia.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny I love how you do the voices I'm hoping in a little while you can read one of your stories or I'll portion one of your favorite stories to oh us.
1: oh I sure, sure. okay
0: okay great. <laughs> great
1: yeah so I left a long time ago went to an Episcopal boarding school but in another tiny town in uh, near Sewanee Tennessee and then I went to college Randolph-Macon Women's College and moved to Washington DC in the late '80s. Um, and certainly have loved being in this large metropolitan um, area with with such rich you know rich things like diversity and theater and museums and all of that. And truth be told, as I get older, I I sometimes miss the intimacy and connection that only happens in a small southern town or small New England <laughs> town. And so. I I was visiting Mississippi a lot right before the pandemic hit because I was finishing this book and I felt like I need to mm-hmm. go back to the I needed to go back to the motherland as I like to call it <laughs> um, you know to to finish and to have some time to hang out and visit with people in my hometown and go to the cemetery and just kind of have a more leisurely um, healing visit and because before that I, I would only go for about three days. And then I'd leave. And so I went for about 10 days and I reconnected with friends and, um, you know, drove over to Oxford, Mississippi, several times to my favorite bookstore over there and just really was coming to appreciate the South a little bit more. And I mean, I know it still has its challenges, certainly politically. Um, But I found out that these Pride festivals were happening in like Mm -hmm. Oxford and Starkville. And I thought, oh my gosh, change is coming to Mississippi. How exciting. So (laughs) who
0: would have thought?
1: (laughs) Who would have thought? Yeah. uh, So it's been this paradox of, you know, struggling with some things and really embracing uh, the rich Southern heritage that we have of, of storytelling and blues music and connection and community. And all of those are strong values that I still have.
0: Yeah. And and that brings me to the question of um, what does it mean to be a Southerner? Because that's something else that comes through in your book.
1: Yeah. Well, for me, I identify strongly as a Southerner. I would say as a progressive Southerner, um, Mm -hmm. because to me, um, being Southern is about embracing family and storytelling and connection. And there's something about the eccentricities, um, odd characters, unusual circumstances having to do with place and characters and conflict and what's not talked about, the the secrets and discovering the secrets and bringing that out into the open. that are rich and complicated themes, I think certainly in my life and in many sub, in many LGBTQ Southerners' lives, I think.
0: Yeah, you know, um, there's, a, there's sections in your book where you talk about um, Southern Way is not talking about the elephant in the room. And it seems right. like that it's really came across in your book for me and something that I really got from people I interviewed for my book this idea that people in our community are reclaiming what it means to be Southern by saying it's not just the people who um, have these, these conservative values or some of the terrible things that have happened or that you have to be a certain type of person, but that we're Southerners too because this is where we grew up.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think appreciating all of that, And learning to bring things out into the open more, you know, and whether that's being out as a gay person, or just being more truthful about things that are uncomfortable, being willing to engage in those kinds of conversations, and still hang on to still um, maintain those relationships. I think that's part of being Southern as well.
0: Yeah, I found it very brave of you in several places in your book where... You have these encounters, and, and as you said in the book, and you said this really well that coming out as a can be like a, a daily experience. It can be like experience hour by hour because you never know when you're going to have to um, tell someone about your relationship or something else that's going on. But several places in the book where you're running, you're talking about what's going through your mind as you're having to decide: Do I come out in this situation or not?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and usually I do. I mean, unless I feel like it's really dangerous, I I am out, you know, but I can remember there were a few times, um, like, I I went to a lot of writing workshops as I was writing this book of the first two years, especially, and um, the workshops happened to be in Pennsylvania, which um, in that part of Pennsylvania, I don't think it's a real progressive (laughs) area, and so (laughs) you know, occasionally, uh, but but I love going and having the time to write. And, and I met some really interesting people. And I do remember one time I was sitting with a group of Dallas Christians. <laughs> <laughs> and I could just tell this was going to be interesting, because um, everybody would say, you know, what's the title of your book? So I would just take a deep breath. And I decided, you know what, I'm just going to have fun with this, which is, again, I can rely on my humor to get me through kind of awkward situations. Um, and I would say, well, have I got a title for y'all? Are you ready? Picture me in a purple boa on the stage, a lesbian bell tells. <laughs> and usually everybody would just go into peals of laughter. And, you know, even the even the most conservative ones from Dallas. Um, So I made some interesting connections. And again, in my hometown, when I went back and spent some time, um, there were a few days where I wasn't getting Wi-Fi. I was staying out in this cabin and friends and out in Monroe County. And I came into town for three or four days in a row and um, called a friend of mine who's the president of the bank where my father was, was president a long time ago. And, and I, uh, they were kind enough to allow me to go into the board room, which had this huge table and I've spread my chapters out. And of course they were so friendly, you know, and the, and the ladies would invite me to come have lunch down the hall in the kitchen where they were having chicken and dumplings. And I would go in and of course my dad's been gone for a long time. And so The next generation of people have come to work in this bank, and many of them are not from Oklahoma, they're from other little towns around, so they didn't really know who I was. And they're like, oh, are you a consultant working at the bank? And I said, oh, no, I I grew up here and I'm finishing a book I'm writing. You know, so again i would have to come out again and because everyone and the always young asks. People would, yeah, yeah. Uh, they would always ask and i would i just have to you know get my energy up and just decide i'm going to make this a fun experience and we'll see and mostly it has been very fun and very positive i mean a few people have oh well that's not what i was expecting you to say <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's an educational moment to go you know lesbians don't look one certain way we come in all kinds of forms and um you know that I think that was good for them to know that instead yeah. of
0: there's yeah. a
1: lot of people stereotype you know you don't look like a lesbian Well, what does a lesbian look like all well, different looks
0: different looks and you had, that's, that's another interesting part of the book where you talk about when you first came out especially that it was difficult to know where to fit into this community? Because you, you you describe yourself, I'm quoting, as a lipstick lesbian, and you said that didn't seem to fit in in a lot of circles. Can you talk more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So I came out in 94 in D.C., and at that time, I guess what was popular was that sort of either butch or androgynous look of like those oh, big yeah. Doc Martens, <laughs> Doc Martens boots, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and polo yeah. shirts and cargo pants and that You know, i just, that's not my look. And I remember the first time I walked in, (laughs) I walked (laughs) into this lesbian dance. It was at this really nice place that is now the Trump Hotel, sadly. But it it used to be, uh, yeah, it was, but it used to be a really nice place. I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, it was this dance place and a patio outside and a dance floor and this nice bar. And a friend of mine, told me about this lesbian dance. And I was just coming out. I think it was only the second one i had been to. And I said, well, what do lesbians wear? I don't know what to wear, Cindy. And she said, well, you're a femme. So just, you know, just be yourself and wear something kind of girly, you know, maybe a skirt or something. (laughs) So I got all dolled up in this like silk mini skirt and black (laughs) hose and flats of my little purse and makeup. And I go in and I look around into a sea of of lesbians and I think I called it the 1990s lesbian uniform, which was the polo shirt, Doc Martens, and That's funny jeans. And and women would come up to me and say, I remember this one kind of butch woman came up and said, What are you doing here? She was actually angry. She thought I was a straight woman spying on them. <laughs> and I said, Well, I'm a card carrying member of this community, just like you are. I'm a lipstick lesbian, you know. And, so that's, that's what I noticed a lot in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: And, and on the other hand, you had family members say to you that um, there's no way that you could possibly be a lesbian.
1: Correct, yeah. My parents and my sister were just convinced that either I was rebelling, um, I was rebelling and this wasn't really who I was. And yeah, that was really hard. Because you had that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, because I wanted to I wanted them to just honor my truth. And um, if I think if only families and friends, when they find out someone is LGBTQ, if they could have more curiosity and compassion rather than judgment, mm-hmm. it would be a lot easier. I think.
0: Yeah. 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 It's it's hard. That's um, that's something that you you know you and I both hope is changing. I hope it's it slowly changing because yeah, it's such a difference. And both as both of us being therapists, we we've heard so many stories of uh, yeah by people. Yeah, yeah. Another another theme that comes through in your book is spirituality and your own spiritual journey.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been a rich one. Um, I've always been a very spiritual person, and. I suppose in a way I'm religious as well in a, in a progressive inclusive yeah. kind of interfaith way.
0: Right.
1: Um, I've, I've never, uh, let go of that spiritual part of me. And I've, I'm actually an ordained interfaith minister. I went to an interfaith seminary, oh, yeah. um, back in was ordained in 2009 in Berkeley, California. And that was great. Oh, and, Yeah. So I've explored all kinds, you know, Native American, shamanic, divine feminine, Buddhism. Um, I'm still a member of an Episcopal church in Washington, DC. That's very progressive St. Mark's. So I I just think, you know, whatever is meaningful to people, whatever kind of path helps people discover something greater than themselves, you know, some kind of higher power, I think is really helpful to have in life. That's gotten me through a lot of dark days.
0: Yeah. And, and I thought that was an important part of your book because so many people in our community, um, you know, had a, had a really, their spirituality was something that was really a strength for them. And then when they came out and they were rejected by a religion or a spiritual community, they, um, you know, they, they lost that. Um, and so yeah. it's it's nice to read stories of people like you who've, um, you know, shared your experiences of, of growing and um, finding the something that really, really fits you and is a source of strength for you.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. And I help clients do that as well to find their own authentic spiritual path, I think is really important. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to believe in, in a religious being, Mm -hmm. you know, it can just, it can mean creative higher power, Um, for a while, we went to a Unitarian church. And so I, I read a lot about the importance of people who were humanists, um, and atheists and like, including all of those folks in a mm-hmm. spiritual community is, is important. Although in Mississippi, I think it's still very Christian.
0: It, right? is. it is, but I, yeah, I like what you're saying. The focus on what gonna bring meaning to someone's life? Yeah. 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 Um, this is probably a question I should have asked early in the interview, but it's kind of fun to kind of jump around like we're doing. So yeah. tell that th- you even, you know, like I said, there's um you mix in so well, the um, this this painful periods with the comedy and you even have a tongue in cheek um, title when you say a lesbian bell tells. So tell us about what a lesbian bell is.
1: Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> years ago, I um, I put an ad in. Um, I can't remember if I was dating men or women at that point. I think maybe one of each. So there used to be a Washingtonian magazine here in D.C. Mm-hmm. area, but way before online dating, I'm dating myself. This is back in the early 90s, I guess. Um, and I put an, you know, and you, you had to have a title for your ad. And mine said, the first one said, your mama would love me.
0: <laughs> I love, that's funny.
1: You know, girl next door kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. And the next one, actually a friend of mine who was a straight man helped me with this title. He suggested, and at this point I was definitely dating women. I remember that. I, and I wasn't dating this guy. We were friends from a spiritual community. He's was, he was a great guy, John. And he suggested that my title should be For Whom the Bell Tolls. <laughs> that's good
0: uh, <laughs> well,
1: that in. and then yeah. years down the road i wrote this one woman show and i was working with the director um who was helping me and we were both trying to come up with a really catchy title she was telling me how important it is to have a great strong title and suddenly one day it came to me mm-hmm. a lesbian bell tells because it's storytelling it's i love the paradox the the juxtaposition there of two very different images lesbian and bell and and i think of bell and not i know that word is loaded and it can bring up images of you know annabelle world of slavery and
0: Scarlett Scarlett
1: o'hara type stuff that's not what i mean by by bell it's more of the um playful southern part of me that still likes to have my shoes and my purse match, and wear lipstick, and
0: you <laughs> know, be kind, a of priss, kind of prissy, right?
1: Well, I would prefer to use the word uh, colorful and <laughs> oh, That's <funny.
0: laughs>
1: you know. And still, I'm a lesbian. I'm an out lesbian. I'm a feminist. I'm progressive. Like it's it's sort of my version of intersectionality, I guess, to be yeah, yeah. the southern lesbian, spiritual, kind of edgy, um, all of that mixed together is sort of like embracing all parts of myself. So that's how I think of it.
0: Well, I love that you use the word intersectionality because it, it really goes back to that um, question of what it means to be Southern. And, and I think it comes across for me so strongly in your book about how you're reclaiming what it means to be Southern. Um,
1: yes. <clears throat> yeah, I think... I think it's really important to reclaim parts of ourselves, especially, you know, if we didn't appreciate that, like there was a part of me in the past that I felt almost embarrassed or ashamed to be from Mississippi because of the horrific racism and homophobia um, that still exists. Mm -hmm. You know, I still have moments of sort of cringing. Um, and so it's it's also important, though, for me to let people know that there is another side of Mississippi and the rest of the Deep South, that there are progressive people there trying to change things for the better.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. And, I, you know, I, I guess when I say reclaiming, reclaiming Southern identity, I, I think about especially some of the politicians out of Mississippi that are in the news. Yeah. And say yeah. These things that are just you just cringe when you hear it and you're thinking, I don't. That's not, all the, that's not all the people I know who are Mississippians or who are Southerners. There's a lot of people like that's right. who are really very progressive and really trying to um, reclaim the parts that, that, that are good, the connectivity with other people and the love and things like that. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And especially in the university towns in Mississippi. I mean, let me tell you, during this pandemic, I have been so fortunate to connect with so many great people um professors at Mississippi State and Delta State and people in Jackson. Um, I have just really enjoyed me and and some of these people are straight as well, are very good allies. And I've actually um, fingers crossed, uh, my show is booked and a storytelling workshop at State in Starkville in March. Um, and also at Delta State, and I hope to get it booked at other places down there, too, because there are still a lot of really good progressive people working hard down there for positive change. Really
0: there really are. Yeah, and I'm, I can't wait to see you come down here. I'll be I'll be at the show.
1: Oh, thank you, John. That'd be great. Yeah.
0: So um, I wondered if you did, if you had a, one of your favorite stories in the book that you'd be willing to share with readers or listeners here to give them a, a sense of what it's like when they read your book.
1: Sure. I think I'd like to read chapter 10, A Southern Funeral to Die For, about going to my mother's, mother's funeral. That's a great story. I love that. Thanks. Yeah. Mama's death marked a new chapter in my life. A few days after she died in Boston, Marie and I flew down to Mississippi for her funeral. It was a traditional Episcopal funeral in my childhood church, Grace Episcopal. I remember it was a quiet service with prayers from the Book of Common Prayer and comforting hymns such as Amazing Grace, How Great Thou Art, and Jerusalem, My Happy Home. After the burial, we went, we went back to my childhood home on Monroe Avenue for the Celebration of Life Party, because y'all Southern funerals are to die for. That's when the healing begins. All that connecting and remembering and sharing stories for hours with friends and family, Let's face it, sometimes our friends are more fun than our family members. There are peals of laughter and soft, teary eyes, joy and sadness held in a container of love. Sharing heartwarming stories and eating comfort food, these rituals begin to heal grief. And oh, the food. All that delicious Southern funeral food, like melt-in-your-mouth pot roast, crispy fried chicken, Cooked to death casseroles like asparagus with melted Velveeta cheese on top and homemade biscuits with ham and the desserts. Socket pound cake, moist chocolate cake and an apple pie. Not exactly healthy, but to Southerners, this kind of food was a staple of our lives growing up before gluten-free was a thing. There's an amazing book called Being Dead is No Excuse. The official Southern lady's guide to hosting the perfect Southern funeral There are scrumptious recipes in that book. Marie and I walked into the house and entered the living room. There were lots of proper church ladies in their black funeral dresses standing around. Everyone stared at us when we walked into the room. My sister, Marguerite, looked uncomfortable, jumped up and said, everyone, this is um, Marie, our um, family friend. And I thought to myself, oh, hell no, I am not going to be closeted. So I took a deep breath and said, no, Marie is my partner, not a family friend. My sister shot me an angry look. Then there was an awkward silence. Then at the perfect moment, Mama's best friend and sorority sister, Shirley, sauntered in. She looked stunning as a 77-year-old Southern lady wearing her black and white tweed suit with pearls, burgundy lipstick, and her beautiful silver helmet of thick hair that made her aquamarine eyes pop. Wearing her shiny black pumps and black hose, Shirley was still one classy Southern lady. I've known Shirley my whole life and loved her. She and Mama were Tri-Deltas at Ole Miss. That's Delta, Delta, Delta. Can I help you, help you, help you, sorority. Class of 1946. I've always loved Shirley because she was the opposite of Mama. She was extroverted, fun, outrageous, and curious, bordering on nosy in a warm way, while Mama was introverted, serious, private, and reserved. Shirley had no filter. She said what she thought and felt. Shirley rushed over to me and gave me a Mama Bear hug. God, how I've missed those squeeze you tight hugs from older Southern ladies. Oh Elizabeth darling girl I'm so sorry we lost your mama. She was my best friend. Well, I hear you brought your partner and I don't guess you mean business partner, do you darling? <laughs> <laughs> oh, leave it to Shirley for a fabulous icebreaker at a southern funeral. Shirley Marie and I laughed nervously while everyone else in the room stared at us. Hello dear Shirley, I'm so glad you're here. This is Marie my partner. We've been together for two years. Shirley smiled, showing her perfectly white teeth, which which had to be dentures. Her voice went up an octave like she was excited and uncomfortable. Oh, well, hello, Marie. I'm so glad to meet you, honey. Shirley looked Marie over from head to toe in that sizing you up look that older coiffed Southern ladies do so well. Maria, I'm so glad you and Lizbeth don't wear those big old manny shoes. <laughs> little did Shirley know. Little did Shirley know I had forbidden Marie from wearing her big comfortable lesbian shoes. to my <laughs> Lizbeth, darling, let's go in the kitchen. I have some questions I want to ask you. I felt excited and a bit nervous as we made our way back to the kitchen. Honey, did your mama know? Yes, Shirley, Mama knew that I'm a lesbian. Well, did she ever meet Marie? No, she refused to meet her. My siblings, Gemma Marguerite, only met Marie a few days ago at the hospital in Boston. No one in my family has accepted me except for a few cousins and my aunts. It's been a painful journey for me. I never dreamed that Mama would reject me for so long. Well, I'm so sorry, Elizabeth. Your mama was so religious ever since your brother went off the deep end, growing and smoking all that marijuana at Ole Miss back in 65. When we tried delta gals traveled together, by the way, we called ourselves the Golden Girls. Your mama would bring the Bible, and our friend Annelle would bring the bourbon. Those wild trips, we call those trips our B&Bs. <laughs> oh, Shirley, I wish I'd been with y'all on those trips, she grinned and continued. But listen, darling, your mother, we called her by her maiden name, Cooper. Well, about eight years ago, Cooper stopped talking about you. All of us Golden Girls thought that was the oddest thing because you were her midlife baby and she always talked about you. We thought you had cancer or something. Finally, we heard through the Mississippi Gossip Grapevine about your situation. Oh, that I'm a lesbian. Well, what'd you think, Shirley? Well, I was shocked because you're a pretty girl and I knew you'd have boyfriends, but secretly, honey, I was kind of thrilled because I've never known any real live lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> wondering if she knew some dead lesbians. Well, Shirley, I'm glad you're kind of excited about it. We walked back into the living room and Shirley stared at Marie and then stared back at me. She walked over to Marie like she was determined. I held my breath. Marie, sugar, I sure do love your southern girl from North Carolina. Thank the Lord, Lesbeth didn't end up with a Yankee. That would be more shocking than being gay. We laughed heartily and Shirley continued to amaze me when she said, I want y'all to come down and visit me in the Delta this spring down in Indianola. There's nothing like losing your mother, honey. You know, Cooper and I shared the same birthday, April 16th, 1925. And Marie, I want to get to know you. Y'all come for Easter, Elizabeth. That'll be a hard time for you. We'll share our sadness and our stories about your mama. I was thrilled and amazed that Shirley was embracing us.
0: I love that story. It's beautiful. Yeah. And Thank I wish you. The listeners could um, see your voice also, which I guess they will see in the one, the one woman show, because um, if you could listeners, if you could see, in addition to doing the voices, she shows these expressions in her face so that <laughs> there's a different person talking to you.
1: So. Oh right, I, I do lots of characters in
0: my show. Yeah. It's a lot. Oh, you're of fun. really good. You have a way of telling a story. Very nice. Very nice. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what would you like the listeners to, or anyone who reads your book, to take away from your book?
1: Well, I hope that my book inspires people to really think about their own stories, especially their their stories mm-hmm. of loss, because I think during this pandemic we've had so much loss, and if we can kind of appreciate our stories and and reframe them mm. um, I think we can all connect on a deeper level and we can heal and feel more empowered um, instead of feeling like a victim and I really mm. want people to know that you know we're we're just all connected um, we're not really alone even though sometimes we might feel kind of isolated if If people will just take a little risk and like I like to say, pick up the phone, you know, stop all this texting and
0: Mm.
1: hear other human voices. That's really important for us to do, to feel connected, to have the positive endorphins released in the brain. There's nothing like a good conversation. I mean, there's nothing like one in person, of course, first of all but a lot of us have not been able to to be in groups very much for the past year and a half. Some, some this summer, I think for those of us who were fully vaccinated, we started Mm -hmm. to see people and and get out a little bit, but we're still very cautious. Um, and yet I'm still amazed at, you know, in person is just so much better than zoom and texting and social media Mm -hmm. and all that. I, I really want people to, to embrace this connection. Um, through sharing stories and to have more courage to be vulnerable and tell some of the difficult stories and and realize that we're all connected.
0: And I imagine that you, through your book, you give many people permission to do that. So I think it's a great service you're doing.
1: Thank you, I hope so. And and the other thing that I'm excited to start doing in the spring, um, I'm gonna be traveling a lot, actually, I think in the South and in other places too, is that I want to offer, in addition to performing, like at universities and big theaters, I also do smaller events, like uh, performing at what, at what I call a house concert. Mm-hmm. So I'll do the, the pure storytelling version without all the tech and the music and all that, which is actually easier to do. Yeah. And it's more intimate to a group of 20, 30, 40 people, and then have like a weekend event. And I do storytelling workshops as well. Oh. And I teach people how to craft a meaningful, poignant story. And then at the end of the weekend, for those who are interested, um, we'll have a, a little show and let people perform and invite some friends. And again, that's so great for connecting and community building and healing and and just feeling um, grateful and, and joyful about being together again.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah. look forward to, look forward to seeing that. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, you're welcome, John. Thanks so much for having me. And by the way, I enjoyed reading your book as well. All those interviews with those couples, that was amazing. You must've had a great time doing that and getting those stories.
0: Oh, I did. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: And to our listeners, if you are interested in reading A Lesbian Bell Tales by Elizabeth McKay, please click on the highlighted title of the book in the description included with this podcast. And join us again next time for Queer Voices of the South on the New Books Network.